Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Once Bitten podcast. Joining me on this show is Christopher Calicott, co-founder and managing director of Trammel VC, another Bitcoin-only venture capital firm who are doing great work behind the scenes, finding the best entrepreneurs and the best projects in Bitcoin of which to back and make sure that they get the support that they need so they can build and go forward and uh, make Bitcoin the dream a reality. So thank you, Christopher, for everything that you're doing. I hope you enjoy this show. Before we get into the interview, please make sure you're supporting the show sponsors. Swamp Bitcoin have a few new services out. Go to swampbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. Get signed up for whatever you need. They have a white glove service. You can now start uh, a Roth IRA with them. You can get your business onto Bitcoin. You can stack daily with them. You can smash buy. They've got the perfect team for you. So that's swampbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. Similar services in the Europe are relay, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H forward slash bitten. They do all of the above for you as well. And you can get in direct contact with Benjamin there at Relay, who's going to walk you through everything that you need to do or just simply smash buy Bitcoin with the app. Download the app today. It's a very low KYC process and you can start smashing up to a thousand pounds or euros per day just via your usual payment method. So don't hang around, get stacking. Coin Corner are based in the Isle of Man. They serve the UK and Europe. You can smash buy with these guys. You can auto buy with these guys. Set up your auto buys once a week, whatever it is that you can afford to do. That is the best way to start building your stack, your position in Bitcoin. And you can also order the Bolt card from them and use that in merchants that accept Bitcoin uh, direct from your Coin Corner account. Hodl Hodl are the place to go for a global peer-to-peer trading platform, non-KYC. You can also use their lending product that is peer-to-peer lending that is being uh, offered to you as well. And also get your tickets as soon as you can for the Riga Honey Badger conference. They already sold out of the early bird, so make sure you keep a close eye on the website, hodlhodl.com, or hit the link in the show notes. There's going to be no discounts for these tickets. They're slowly going to go up in price, and they are selling like hotcakes. Now, do you already have a stack of Bitcoin, and you want to up your privacy game? You can do that using wasabiwallet.io. Get any Bitcoin you have with a on-ramp, a third party, off the exchanges, off the apps, Get them into a Wasabi wallet, run them through, see the coin join happen in front of your eyes, up your privacy, and then take them from that wallet onto a cold storage device. You can use the Bitbox02 by shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten and use the code bitten to get a 5% discount off that particular signing device or hardware wallet. Get to a conference or meet your plebs. Orange Pill app is growing growing very, very quickly, and you are going to meet some people on there. Make sure you get to a conference. Liberty in Our Lifetime is coming up by Free Cities Foundation in October. 
and you've got B2C Prague and B2C Miami to get to as well. Hit the links in the show notes and enjoy this rip with Christopher. All right, we are recording. Christopher Calicott, how are you doing? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Daniel. Thanks for having me on. Uh, doing great here. It's uh, a bit bipolar weather in Central Texas this time of year. Um, it was uh, freezing with ice uh, a couple of weeks ago. Today, it's going to be 80 Fahrenheit. So, Well, all right. Nice. We will have to visit one day. Not been to Texas. So, Lauren, what have you got? What's your question? Um, why do you invest in Bitcoin? Um, well, um, we're, we've been a, a bullish on Bitcoin for a really long time now. Um, Bitcoin companies in particular, uh, probably a lot of different reasons, you know, I think if that's the, if that's kind of the direction you're going with your question, um, you know, we feel like there's an inevitability for Bitcoin's global adoption, but we also feel like the, the time to achieve that global adoption is kind of a function of a lot of the drivers for it. And, and companies that are building on or around Bitcoin kind of uh, lasso the future and pull a little closer to the present. And so we think it's part of an important part of the acceleration. And also, as Bitcoin's market capitalization is higher and higher, you know, uh, getting, you know, 500x returns on Bitcoin um, becomes um, more and more challenging. However, a lot of the companies that are actually achieving that can grow much faster and, uh, and actually achieve some greater returns as well, which at the end of the day leads to more Bitcoin. So um, maybe that was a longer answer than you were looking for, Lauren, but thanks for the question. Any answer is fine. Short, long, medium, any answer. <laughs> Do you have any follow-up questions? Um, I don't think so, no. No? Well, you like to usually ask what is people's favorite thing about Bitcoin. Yeah, but I feel like that's getting boring now because I ask it all the time. We have new listeners come to the show. This, this might be the first show they've ever listened to. They might have seen Christopher Calicott made it to the Once Bits and Podcast. I've got to listen to this one. All right. That's well, right. <laughs> what's your favorite thing about Bitcoin? It's fair. It's very fair. You might not necessarily uh, think the, the rules are perfect, but you know the rules and you know that they can't be changed by people that want to change the rules to their own benefit and i think the world as as you will continue to learn uh lauren is um full of games that people play and to have that consistency in a sea of noise and change volatility it's actually really refreshing i like the fairness the predictability of bitcoin yeah all right. Well, thank you for your question. Yep. Anyways. Yeah. Thank you, Lauren. Bye. Thank you. Pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you too. Yeah. Thanks, Christopher. Fair. That that's um, that's the perfect word, and this is where I like to kind of go down people's own life journeys and talk about touch points prior to Bitcoin, and mm. um. I had a very interesting gentleman on this morning that the reason he found Bitcoin was through an inheritance problem. And that's what bought him. And that's when he saw the just nature of, of Bitcoin. Going down through some of your, your past experiences, is there anything that's happened back in your life that you think kind of 
primed you for Bitcoin before Bitcoin even dropped on us? Oh, wow. Yeah, I think there were probably a lot of factors that worked in, in parallel to kind of get me ready for this. I've always been, since I was a little kid, you know, I had my first computer um, when I was a little guy, you know, probably nine or ten years old. Um, in a long distant uh, time <laughs> when the dinosaurs were on the earth. Uh, and, you know, and this, and I was always interested to make it do things that, that were neat and unusual. Um, we had seen before the advent of the web, you know, so I'm, I'm dating myself a little bit, you know, but in the, in the days <laughs> where people had 300 or 800 baud, you know, modems and were, savvy enough to dial in and connect to a, a text-based chat system, some sort of a BBS and that sort of thing. We kind of saw how this with technology that would enable it would get to be so rapid that we could do really interesting things that at one time where um, like on cartoons, like the Jetsons, uh, you know, people were talking to each other in, in, in video phones and, and this kind of stuff that was seemed like make-believe at the time, but, and yet here we are and it's passe. Now we take this as, as a given to our daily lives. Why am I talking about that stuff? You know, I think I would say I was always just keen and interested to try new things and to understand where technological waves were, were likely to unfold. It was always fun to, to see these things when they were being talked about in almost like the design and standards phase and then get rolled out. You know, I remember when we went from 56K modems, which were quite fast at the time, uh, to the, the advent of DSL lines and then subsequently cable modems. And I was working in tech at the time. Now, with that kind of like voracious appetite for technology, for what was coming, in there all along, I had this kind of deep intuitive sense that in the backdrop of the, the early days of the web, the, this promise of free speech, global information at everyone's fingertips, which would be a great democratizer of, 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 of the promises that we've kind of enjoyed in the West, you know, access to information um, that we hoped would lead to tyrannical governments in the rest of the world, their citizens realizing what, what they were actually kind of living under and and some some of those things were the promises one of the factors that i just always had like this intuitive sense is that the way that we're using you know debit cards or you know cash and whatever it is in a tech fueled you know the internet age it just doesn't make sense that there's not a native value transfer mechanism some sort of internet native monetary system for the internet um, that was something that I just kind of expected and, and my business partner, I think as well, um, we had that kind of mindset and we saw a few of those attempts come and go. Um, they all failed for primarily centralization types of reasons. Um, so I think to your question of like, was, was there something that kind of made, set me up and made me ready? Few prongs, you know, tech, you know, tech savvy, certainly like a, an enthusiast, um, kind of little L libertarian, uh, strong leanings since I was uh, a rebellious youth <laughs> uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, with that hope and promise of the Internet to to really 
take the ideas of, of freedom, those values and principles to the world, you know, you just don't get there with a manipulated mon monetary supply. And I thought the internet's advent was in many ways like this coming promise uh, to undo a lot of injustices in the world and to just through the power of free information, you know, purely in that way. And of course, we also were <laughs> um, probably cynical enough to realize that as soon as um, the powers that be realized that information was free, they would attempt to control it in some sort of way. And so um, I think that's kind of the, the setup and how I was sort of receptive to Bitcoin, I would say. And there's other, certainly other facets that are, you know, personal and, and, and those kinds of things as well. But I think that's kind of what primed me for it. Before we started recording, you said uh, you'd spent some time here in France doing your studies. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm interested to know how, how that transpired as, as that young rebellious kind of nature uh, leaning towards libertarian ideas, being exposed to tech at an early age. Uh, what did you choose to study and how did that culminate in you flying across the pond to come and study in France? And um, So it was, again, probably multiple facets that kind of like led to that, that decision. You know, so I grew up obviously a native English speaker, um, was always, uh, um, you know, just ha had strong natural orientation toward mathematics and, um, and, and to a certain degree also card sense. I played cards as a little bit of a, a tangent to our discussion, but I, I spent a lot of times when I was a little bitty kid playing cards and, and developed a keen number sense uh, and card sense uh, along the way, competed in some some um, math uh, competitions. I had the computer science piece, of course. Also, um, a fledgling uh, entrepreneur at an early age. I had my first little business. Uh, I There was a, a kind of skateboard that I really liked that wasn't available in the area that I was. So I, I saw an arbitrage, and, <laughs> although I wouldn't have used that word at the time, and, 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 brought, and brought those uh, skateboards to the little town in South Texas that I grew up in. Uh, you know, so all those kinds of pieces, I ended up, you know, having a, uh, I guess, an elongated period in, in different kinds of overlaps of study. So my undergrad is um, a strong blend of computer science, uh, business, and ultimately the degree that I have in my undergrad, I had so much um, humanities studies, it's actually in the French language. Um, but with... Um, there was uh, nearly three degrees worth of uh, of study in there. So um, uh, anyway, that's kind of that kind of the background. And part of that, I had I had studied French in high school. Um, Spanish was an obvious choice, being from Texas. I feel like you get some of the pronunciation just by being you know exposed um, linguistically to to Spanish. I felt like that's a language I can always um, learn when I'm ready. I always thought French was just a beautiful language. Um, you know, everyone speaks languages that they like and has their favorites. For me, it's like the most lovely sounding language on earth. Um, and uh, part of American history, uh, all the way back to the American Revolution and the formation of the Constitution was actually informed by, um, we have obviously a special relationship with with Great Britain and England, um, but also with uh, with France. You know, they, they funded the revolution. We've got cities in America um, called Lafayette. Um, 
uh, because of of his activity during the American Revolution. So it's, I'm a big history buff. I think there's a lot of factors. Um, and so, yeah, it kind of fed into it. That's how I ended up uh, um, in the, the Southwest of France for a, ultimately a pretty brief period of time, but uh, got to know the country and I visited there quite a bit. But uh, I've also studied abroad twice. Um, I did my MBA at IE Business School in Madrid. Um, so I was there for about a, a little less than a year and a half in, in aggregate. So, um, and that's uh, when I got to have private tutoring and and learned uh, my third language, Spanish. So, Wow. Okay. So what were you studying in France? Uh, it, it was, it was a, a language and uh, French literature immersive um, uh, kind of program at, at the university that's in Pau. Wow. So you got all of that under your belt, and then uh, you, I just checked your LinkedIn. Um, you you end up kind of uh, getting into telecommunications um, in a consulting kind of way, which is interesting because there you have networking and network effects, which obviously ties into exactly what we're talking about with Bitcoin here. So did, was that experience as well something that you you feel was a good kind of foundation for understanding the network effects of Bitcoin, which we're obviously witnessing and have witnessed the last couple of years. Yeah, and probably some of the pieces that, there that are actually even stronger to to your question. Um, that was almost like a, a bit of a of a capstone experience. The one that you probably saw. There's just a lot of details in the '90s that don't don't make the cut, or just you know for for the ver- purposes of verbosity, I guess on LinkedIn. But <laughs> yes. um, I actually. Um, uh, you know, I I did a, a few things in uh, in the internet in internet working specifically. Before that, I had uh, built <clears throat> built out the uh, a support uh, center for a regional ISP, and then after that, uh, senior uh, systems administration work for a regional ISP uh, in the Texas area. This was at a time where it was before there was a lot of industry consolidation, uh, you know, M and A activity, where ultimately. Um, you know, telcos and cable companies, um, you know, supply all the internet. At the time, it was much more decentralized, actually. You know, this was a small, medium business. Um, ultimately, business uh, was pretty medium to large around the time it got acquired in, in, a, in a roll-up deal. But um, it was fun. You, you saw the network effects for sure. You know, I, and I grew up in the Houston area, and uh, at the time the Astros baseball, I don't know if you, baseball is maybe not a, a, a huge uh, popular activity in, in France, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, you know, the Houston Astros, you know, important baseball team. And at the time, they didn't have their own network. You know, they had a, they had a LAN, a local area network. They needed to connect that to the rest of the internet. And so we managed their, their internet infrastructure, um, the early days of, um, web hosting and, you know, kind of like separating uh, certain kinds of services from like proprietary networks where, you know, um, secret information is traveling and things like that. So, yeah, we, we saw that that happen. And then ultimately we also saw a lot of consolidation where there are some very large entrenched incumbents kind of controlling the, uh, the backbones of the internet. And I can't let this one slide, but I did see on LinkedIn as well, and this might be another geek out thing, Something about writing for a wine magazine. Uh, oh yeah, it's yeah. What? Well, okay, take us down that rabbit hole. <laughs> so people that know me well know that I'm uh, something of a 
of a, a wine aficionado, you okay. might say. Uh, it kind of goes with the whole um, languages and history, humanities, um, like appetite that's textured with a whole lot of maths and uh, and uh, computer science and business. Um, I at a this this sounds funny uh, <laughs> to say it actually now that I'm about to say it aloud. When I was a kid. <laughs> Uh, I had a teacher in in the eighth grade she's a history teacher and she became friends with my with my mom and dad and and uh in the family um she had a couple of kids that were roughly my age so on special dinners and things like that um we would we would get together the two families and have these really nice dinners the parents um they enjoyed a little wine and she had a friend that was an importer of some very special uh, German Auslaces and Spätlaces. And um, so the kids, we get this like, you know, two thimbles full of wine so that we could, you know, do the big, big uh, people's table thing and all that. And it was, it was very, I could t- tell that it was very special and unusual from anything that I had smelled in like a parent's cup or whatever. And the more I poked around, the more I realized that, I mean, this is kind of a strange thing for, I guess, a kid to realize, but it's, it's my story. Um, you can trace the development of human civilization with the cultivation of the vine. Um, I thought that was fascinating. There's even a book that I read much, much later called Wine and War. And mm-hmm. it talks, it's actually, if, uh, for France being so important in, in, in the wine uh, industry, of course, talks about these legendary estates when they were kids doing things like trying to protect the, the family's legacy seller and hide it from Nazis during World War II, and they would put these these fake walls, and then it was this uh, one guy, and he's he he produces probably the single most expensive Burgundy that there is uh, today as a as an old man, but his job was to go get mud and spackle the corners and make it look old and dirty, and then go find spiders and put them in there so they would grow some cobwebs, um, and of course they had they had to be smart about it. They couldn't take everything and put behind this wall, so they would have to give some put some stuff around that they could take and feel like, okay, well, we got what they had. Um, but then the real secretive stuff was, was behind there. A little bit of a tangent, but um, it all sort of kind of ties together for me. I think the the history element, the language element, um, the wine element, and to your question specifically, with that background, um, and, you know, I had, for fun, I, I do things like, I like to go on, on trips, and I learned a long time ago when I was um, far poorer, <laughs> That when you go on a trip, you can you can buy a souvenir. If it's a T-shirt, you know it's going to eventually wear out. You can certainly take pictures um, and and that sort of thing. But if you learn something and have an experience while you're on a trip in that special place, you have a dividend that continues to pay pay rewards throughout your life through that educational that in, that enrichment. And so. Um, yeah, I've I've studied a couple of times in Bordeaux. I've studied in in Burgundy. Um, I've done some uh, some some studies in um, in Spain uh, as well. And so it's it's just a thing I do. And so I had a friend in Las Vegas when I lived in in Vegas uh, who was the editor in chief of this nationally distributed glossy magazine. And she's like, Christopher, I want to do a um, I want you to do a wine and fine dining column. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not a writer. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I can, I can write, I've never done that. Um, she's like, yeah, but you'd be great. You know, all this stuff and you're the, the, the go-to person I know. So I was like, okay, cool. 
but we're going to do it my way. And my way meant there are all these shows that are talking and putting the emphasis on like the celebrity chef and all this kind of stuff. Where a lot of the magic happens with special meals is the interplay between the food and the wine. And pairings are particularly tricky. And that's usually a special process that happens with um, with the chef and the sommelier doing a lot of testing, trial and error. And then they try to make the magic happen and look just seamless um, and effortless at the table. So we focused on sommeliers. In Vegas, as it turns out, you know, they have some amazing sommeliers because people travel there from around the world. So people move there with a lot of uh, wine knowledge. And so for me, it was great. I could go to like Guy Savoie and Joel Robichon's place and meet with the sums and, you know, taste wine with them and learn about what makes them tick and kind of put the focus on them. So that was I did that for a couple of I guess, two, two and a half years or something. It, it was great. And I got a lot of access, which, by the way, um, I got me into some very exclusive sellers in, in France. So <laughs> Nice. And with wine comes low time preference and scarcity, right? Yeah, I think there are people that I think out there are natural Bitcoiners, even if they don't know it yet. You know, precisely. If you're, if you're a wine collector, you have a diminishing supply on something that um is coveted you know so it's it's the joke of course is it's a liquid asset but there's actually you know <laughs> there, there are secondary markets uh you know centered largely around uh uh england and france uh to trade trade these things they say in like you know very climate controlled uh environments and you can you have your ownership and you can trade in uh in exchanges and whatnot and um also another one and this is not some an area of mine but it's an area that people instinctively get uh bitcoin if they've come from the space comic books you know uh, mm -hmm. graphic novels and things like that they're 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 made they're numbered to begin with and then over time pages get damaged the the pristine supply constantly goes down if it's a value the the the, the demand goes up or at least stays constant with a decreasing supply and so there you have it um you know i think these folks are uh, are just uh, Bitcoiners in the waiting, I think. Well, I cannot let you slide without you giving us a recommendation here. So as you well know, in the space, uh, the favorite food is probably beef, uh, you know, for all of the <laughs> all of the plebs out there listening. Uh, and if so if I go with one cut, let's choose the ribeye. That seems to be pretty much, uh, you know, a, a fan favorite, a firm favorite of most plebs out there. What would you be pairing with a, a ribeye, medium rare, and you can go as geeky as you like. You can, you know, if you're in Argentina, if you're in Paris, if you're wherever. You know, well, first I would say my ribeye would be rare. Right. I, I like to live a little on the dangerously dangerous side if uh, the marbling in a ribeye should be soft obviously you don't want hard pieces of fat on the plate but it's it's tricky to get it to where the ribeye is actually rare and and super super tender but with the fat just uh nice and soft um so that's that's generally how i order steaks myself is rare um the wine question though look i think you can go a lot of different directions in, in the states people tend to lean toward big california cabs and that sort of thing um i've always been a huge fan of the rhone wines um hermitages um you know uh code roti has always been one of my favorite appellations in the world um and it's it's also just a really neat place to visit uh with 
um, you know, they've, they've planted and cultivated vines there back well before the Romans. So it's, it's kind of a cool place. And they're with all the Syrah, they're, they're quite beefy, but they still have plenty of acidity. So cuts through the fat. I don't know. I'm making wine recommendations today. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> Co- Cotro tea or Hermitage, um, I love. So there you go. All right. So if a waste slice is listening for the, um, the beefsteak event that he throws in Miami, that's, that's the one he needs to contact you for uh, wine recommendations to, uh, to hand out. Well, as it turns out, uh, Josh and I, um, we have a, a gentleman's agreement. We'll say, <laughs> uh, uh, he, he also enjoys really good wine as you can imagine. And so I, whenever I go to beefsteaks, I usually show up with, uh, three or four good bottles and, uh, and, and share a little bit with the chef. It's it's important to keep your chefs uh, happy in your life. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely it is. Josh is great. I'll actually be seeing Josh next week. Well, there you go. Enjoy a glass of red. Uh, we will do. The other thing that you've mentioned here, which is probably worth coming back to, is cards. Uh, and I've had another guest on the show who was very much into his cards as well. That's Bill from Bill Hill, William Hill, named after his favorite gambling outfit, obviously. Uh, who was um, he is setting up Bitcoin Island in uh, in the Philippines on Boracay, and he was telling me all about his card playing days, uh, whether that was in Vegas or then when he moved over to the Philippines, he was started playing in the casinos in uh, in Manila, if I remember rightly. Uh, how deep down that rabbit hole did you go? And were you the guy that was sitting at the the poker table in in Vegas, uh, taking people's money, or was it just for fun? Uh, no, great question. Um, and th- this is one of those, uh, those facts that I think a lot of people don't really know about me, which is, um, it's always, uh, raises some eyebrows and people perk up when you, uh, when it comes up, if it comes up. Uh, so yeah, I actually, I mentioned playing, uh, cards, uh, uh, when I was a little, a little guy, my, my parents were, uh, you know, my mom was amazing. <laughs> this is, this is not a statement A mom. She, you know, I played with pennies and nickels and maybe dimes when I was a little bitty kid. But, um, you know, you can't play poker without, um, you know, the the quote is uh, poker is a game of psychology in in which we keep score with money. Um, and so you have to have some sort of value representation to do it. And then when I was a teenager, um, I played with friends. Uh, you know, we had games that would go practically all night. Um, sometimes on the weekends, um, was a lifeguard back then. So I always had a little cash and, you know, and, uh, we'll say a certain appetite for risk. Um, and I, I learned that given sufficient, um, numbers of hands and enough time, I could invariably beat them. Uh, and so got pretty good. I took it a little seriously, a little more seriously when, once I was an adult and, um, kind of, I guess, really cut my teeth uh, with real money on some of the underground poker rooms that are around the Houston area, you know, Dallas, Austin, to a lesser extent, um, when I was young and, and, uh, learned how to play and then, um, had a, had a, a personal loss that made me do a lot of kind of deep reflection on, you know, okay, what, what do you really want to do? And I had this very strong sense that, um, you know, my mom, when she passed, you know, she was barely 50 years old. And um, for the people in their 20s that are listening, um, that is not old. Um, and 
And she had all these plans that she wanted to do. She was going to uh, travel and, you know, she was getting to where she wanted to start executing on all these plans. And that it was just, you know, fortunately it wasn't, you know, she didn't suffer a long time. It was, it was quite quick and, um, and that sort of thing. But it really made me ask myself, what do you want to have been your life? And I had this very strong sense that I don't want to be the person that had the opportunity to take certain well-understood and calculated risks, win, lose, or draw, and and be, you know, 65 or 75 years old and be wondering, yeah, well, remember that time? Wonder what would have happened. Um, I want to be the guy that can say, well, when I did that thing, this is what happened and here's what I learned. Here's how I grew. And, and so, you know, in this period of, you know, early 2000s, um, there was a, a phenomenon that had happened right around the same time where poker for the first time was on television on broadcast TV. Um, they had this very simple innovation where you could have a small camera behind the cards. You knew what they were holding and you could see it play out in real time on the screens, which I'm, I'm explaining something that everyone has probably seen at this point um, if they you know watch sports TV to any small degree. Um, that caused an absolutely absolute explosion of of new players, and then right, you know, within a year or so, the first online uh, card rooms started opening up. And so there was all these new people, um, all of them essentially beginners. Although with online, uh, you can see a lot of hands very quickly when you can play like ten or twelve tables at the same time, so you can build up a card sense uh, pretty quickly. Um, so I found myself going back and forth uh, from Las Vegas uh, and Houston in, an increasing amount. And, and you know, at some point I realized I, on different road trips uh, across the country, I had probably half of my stuff in Las Vegas. I was like, oh, this is ridiculous. Why, am I, why do I have two, two townhouses? I need to like just move and, and, and that sort of thing. So for about five and a half-ish years, I played poker uh, professionally, um, you know, and in, in just to see what the experience would be like. And I did, did quite well. And um, it actually kind of segues in a way back uh, to, um, you know, more recent um, uh, professional experience. My business partner, you know, he was, he's a, a career security researcher. And, um, you know, we had this huge group of tech, tech folks uh, around Texas. I grew up, like I said, in Houston, he was in the DFW Dallas Fort Worth area. And um, and so every summer, though, in Vegas, there was this big security conference or actually two conferences, Black Hat and DEF CON. So we we called it Hacker Summer Camp. And there would be like an exodus of friends that were from all over Texas and other states out to Las Vegas for the security conferences. So in some ways, um, we did a better job of staying in touch over the years um, because I was in Vegas versus when we were just in Texas. You know, it's it's a five hour drive uh, from Houston to Dallas um, and only a. Uh, a three-hour flight to, to to Las Vegas. So, um, ended up th out there. You know, did that for quite a while, and then went back to what I was always doing in uh, around technology, doing some investments and that kind of stuff. Well, that that also ties into Bitcoin, right? Seeing the opportunity, weighing up the risk. Uh, so now I'm interested to know, at what point in your life did Bitcoin come and tap you on the shoulder? What were those first few actual touch points where someone was saying to you, you've got to look at this or you heard it or you saw an article? Do you remember that time? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. Um, 
always with a bit of uh of of chagrin uh <laughs> um i'm not sure if if we've ever if it's ever come up really before with our background but you know um my old friend and when i say old friend i mean we've been friends since 98 um who's my business partner now dustin uh dustin trammell dustin was um he had been probably on the cryptography mailing list for seven, eight, maybe nine years at the time that Satoshi published the white paper to the list, Halloween 2008. Um, whereas I am, uh, I've made the joke, which maybe isn't isn't funny to a guy from England, but uh, I, I was like, I, I'm so skeptical. I spell it with a C. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and so I, I had all of the questions that you you probably would find someone in the uh the unsophisticated uh press asking today um for a a period of of time and and you know for the first couple of years there was you know, there was no trading activity so there was no no price on these things but it seemed it seemed cool um and like i said we we had seen a number of digital currency you know internet native currency attempts come and go to to dustin's great credit two things first um, I, you know, we, we there are all these sayings: fortune favors the 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 bold. You know, all these kinds of things. I, I think fortune really favors the curious. Um, you know, we're 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 socialized to believe that that curiosity killed the cat, but as it turns out, if you're inclined to tinker, um, that can often you might spend a lot of time tinkering on things that don't go anywhere, and you will. But um, to Dustin's, you know, we, we think he was probably the second node on the Bitcoin network. So he was as early as anyone. And, you know, and he might not just me, but our larger, broader group of friends. He was telling all about this new thing, Bitcoin. You got to check this out. And, and there was there was another pattern that, that we both saw. Um, do you recall, um, you, you know, SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence? Um, this this organization, okay, there no. they had a they had a distributed computational platform. There's all this radio telescope data. They're trying to look for intelligent um, uh, signal in this. It's like the ultimate, you know, um, needle in a haystack kind of problem. And so they it would it would come on when your browser uh, screensaver would come on. So instead of the regular screensaver, this thing would start in the background using CPU cycles. Um, something that was identical but a different mathematical problem um, was called folding at home and folding at home is a is a life sciences uh, computational project that examines um, this idea of protein folding in uh, around neurons the surface of the brain is related to um, cognitive uh, decline uh, things like alzheimer's um uh, mad cow disease, that prion problem is related to protein folding. And so understanding that is one of the key unlocks for ultimately, you know, potentially multi-hundred year non-cognitive decline um, in humans, which is, you know, like really deep long-term science. But but calculating these protein folds and probabilities and how that maps to a, a negative health problem is a massive computational issue. And so they did the same thing. This, you know, when your screensaver comes up, you're away from the computer, it starts doing little bitty slices that are, you know, sharded and decentralized to all these browsers that were running this. And it probably was 
I don't know, a million or more people that, that did these things. We had done both of those, or I, I had done both. I know he had done folding at home. And so we had we had seen like these decentral decentralized approaches to things that were computational in nature, also things like um, uh, file sharing, uh, things like that, certainly. There, there's uh, some pattern matching there. And so, you know, he, he just said, well, let's just try it. And, you know, and, and he did. Um, although I think I, I'm like, poor Dustin, he missed missed the first few days of of of, of block uh, block mining because he didn't realize at the time Bitcoin was very monolithic in nature. So you know the wallet, the the node, the validator, the mining software was all this one piece of software um, that did everything. But you had to go into the preferences and and click the tick the box that says turn mining on because obviously your your fan's going to start going crazy and that sort of thing. So a few days went by when he realized, oh, I've got to turn this on. But um, you know he he mined a bunch of early blocks in the first uh, first few years of Bitcoin's life. And That's so, amazing. Yeah, I had, I had someone so, uh, talking about Bitcoin very enthusiastically for for quite some time. Oh my goodness! So your annoying Bitcoin guy was somebody that had been on the crypto uh, mailing list and possibly ran one of the first handful of nodes on the whole system. Yeah, yeah. Um, just as, wow. as, uh, fate, as, wow. as fate would have it. But, but again, like always with a bit of chagrin because, I mean, I should be a multi-billionaire at this point. But I'm like, yeah, but, you know, in, in classic uh, cynical style, yeah, but, well, what about this? Like, you know, uh -huh. <laughs> but the, the tinkerer is like, well, yeah, maybe, but I don't know. I just turn my computer on. We'll see what happens. And uh, he's doing all right. So uh, at what point then did, did you start sitting up and taking more notice and trying to find out more about Bitcoin and find different materials uh, and different people to listen to rather than, you know, just Dustin, because this is something that happens to us all. It consumes us. And all of a sudden you can't read enough. You can't watch enough. You can't listen to enough. But back in those days, you know, it's slim pickings. Yeah, true. And much less prescriptivism in terms of like, you know, the uses of Bitcoin, thou shalt, thou shalt not. Um, it was just a lot of people that were genuinely curious. A lot of people that lean libertarian, I would say, had problems with and saw the ultimate outcome with a central, you know, fra uh, fraction reserve banking and, and that sort of thing. I remember to your question, and I, I'm not sure if this is the answer, but it's certainly um, a factor. And this is probably would have been around 2011, maybe 2012. I, I remember I attended, I was in, I was still in Vegas at this time, right? And um, I attended a seminar that was put on, on the, uh, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas campus. And it was hosted by a macroeconomics professor and um, and the guy who was the primary author on one of the most common macroeconomics textbooks that were distributed in universities in North America. Um, and I was like, well, this will be an interesting talk. Um, and I remember. I remember at the time there had been, you know, a few articles, you know, and, and whatnot, there was uh, some dark web stuff out there that people had heard about and, and, and that sort of thing. And. You know, and I had, I had asked some genuine questions 
Um, I think I'd ask maybe one question during the talk, during the Q&A period. And then afterward, I just went up to him. There's people standing around um, about, he was talking about the new version of the book. And I was like, well, have you considered, you know, just adding a sidebar on one of the pages in the book to talk about like, this is, this is going to impact, very likely going to um, at least be part of the conversation. I think for for students at university would be very interested in finding an engaging component to have a thoughtful, like, you know, a third of a page, you know, a column on the, in the sidebar or something. Absolutely, completely dismissive of the idea. Um, so deeply confident in... Um, the success of the status quo and Keynesianism, um, you know, full stop, that it was, he, he laughed and, you know, bless my little rock and roll heart. You know, I was like, well, if these guys are so pompous that they can't even have, they're supposed to be in a, in, in an institution of intellectual curiosity mm -hmm. and they can't even, those kinds of blind spots are almost, in my experience, invariably leading to some um, to covering up some gaping holes. And I already was very strongly, um, you know, opposed to um, an unsustainable system. I mean, it's pretty clear to me, if even even then, what was happening with you know all this monetary expansion, devaluing of the dollar, um, and that the solution to these, you know, any given crisis was actually leading to the next, you know, um, crisis and all the moral hazard and et cetera, et cetera. But um, yeah, that for me, I, I remember thinking, okay, if this guy is that diametrically opposed to even a healthy discussion around it, there's got to be something missing here. And I picked it back up. And I, I guess, you know, this is, you know, mea culpa. I feel like it always kind of felt like, well, it's so early that, I have plenty of time to get really serious later. Um, and I went back to uh, to school, to B-School a little bit later. And it turned out that, you know, one of the greatest uh, uh, early massive bull runs was while I was in B-School. So <laughs> <laughs> don't kick the can down the road, kids. That's the... That's the yeah, that's exactly. The we all wish we had bought more earlier. That is... Um... And yeah, anyone listening, you're you're still very very early. And the thing about the the university professor is so true. You're in. You're supposed to be in uh, an institution that champions the idea of uh, free thought and uh, research and uh, you know genuinely interesting debates and conversations and ideas. But to be just shut down, and I think I can't remember who I had this conversation with or whether I saw someone post it. Like in computer science, I think in degrees, certainly in the UK, I believe they're still talking about the the uh, the general uh, the Byzantine generals problem. Mm. It's like, <laughs> could you imagine being a Bitcoiner in that class? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's done. That was that. <laughs> we've solved that, guys. No one knows that, right, like, sir, professor. Stop. It, 2009. Oh, oh, pick me. Yeah. I got this. Yes. <laughs> but what, I mean, imagine what's the professor going to do? He's going to turn around and shut you down and make you look like a fool in front of the class because that is not part of the curriculum and that is not part of the narrative or the agenda 
that is pushed through these institutions. Yeah. This idea that, oh, well, that's settled science. If anyone, anywhere, I don't care how much cachet their title or what their status is in life tells you, oh, that's settled science, call that person a liar. That's not the way science works. I mean, I I, I was taught, I think I was, I, I grew up as a kid in this, what for me it was, okay, this is always the way it is, but I've come to know that other people didn't get the same quality of education that I did or frankly, weren't taught to think for themselves in, in a way that I, I guess I just had an, an outlier kind of primary elementary education, you know, that I was taught scientific principles. I mean, there, I can't even begin to name all the things that, that have been sort of held forth as, well, this is, this is, this is the, the ultimate and final truth um, that have subsequently, oh, well, well, maybe not, you know, even things um that i just didn't feel like could possibly be right like i remember one of the things i was taught when i was a kid is you know black holes extremely rare i was like how would there be a gravitational pull so significant to make galaxies function or turn around a center point the way they do unless they were actually quite common and at the center of galaxies, and later in life, as those, oh well, it turns out, yeah, we we actually found a, a black hole in the center of our galaxy. Shocker! <laughs> I was I was completely unsurprised because that just absolutely made sense to me that that kind of um, force of gravity and 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 it just came from a genuine place of not accepting the things that that I was told at face value. There's just way too much of that in life. Um, yeah, one right. one for me that I could never, never really understand, but it's still being taught because I see what my daughter, you know, is, she's sitting through a history course at the moment um, online, uh, what's being taught about World War One and the spark point, you know, um, Archduke Ferdinand, that's what started the war, that the, the shot that was heard around the world and all of this. And then we start actually learning about the formation of the federal reserve and what Safedine writes about in the first in the first almost paragraph definitely the first chapter of the fiat standard and and how this was all engineered and it's like all of everything that we've been taught is it has this skew on it and i so now i, t I see my daughters and i teach them what i'm being taught but at the same time I know they can't listen to me because if they want to get the grades they want that they're studying for, they have to write down this nonsense that's been just basically, and this is how you program a whole nation at the same time in lockstep with each other. It's crazy. It's, it is, a, I think, a form of societal sort of madness. And also, on the other hand, I see that societies want to create systems that sort of bind them together you know we had the church involved in in governance in the past and these kinds of efforts but um uh you know when it comes to human thought with free thought I, I can give no quarter to that kind of behavior and in compulsion it's 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 actually it's a kind of sickness and it's it's very sad and and i recognize now several decades later, how actually grateful 
um, I need to be for this kind of what turned out to be unusual outlier kind of um, thing. There was there was a program, and I don't know how much of this you want to talk about, but it's interesting to me from an educational standpoint when it comes to what, and I, and I don't use words like this lightly, but really a form of indoctrination um, in terms of the mental model you're given and allowed to embrace to describe your own reality and experience. Um, there was a program called PEAK in Texas when I was a kid. PEAK stood for, and I, I remember this for whatever reason, and I was very young, but uh, Pertinent Education for Accelerated Kids. And this is a program where they sort of identified people that that had certain abilities or outlier gifts, and they wanted to extend those and give them a, um, some new frameworks to really challenge them and and hopefully just help them have the best chance of achieving whatever it is that they might be able to achieve in their life, which um, there were two days a week. And it was like a half day, I think on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we went to this alternative class and we did things like, which now in, in retrospect is like, wow, that was, that was actually pretty heady for a guy that was like 10, 11 years old. We, we studied things. We had a whole module of learning all of the primary forms of propaganda and, yeah. and, and do, doing exercises to identify them in the wild so that we would understand when we were being influenced. Um, I mean, this was a great program. Um, unsurprisingly, along the way, someone was able to kill the program. Mm. It no longer exists in Texas. Um, there are, I've been poking around. There are some elements of the, the curriculum online still, um, but, uh, you know, it's in this fight for making everyone equal, um, which I think is a fool's errand. Um, you know, it's uh, these programs that are designed to help challenge people that really need more challenging um, are just getting cut because they're seen as, you know, treating people as better or, or whatever. Uh, right. Which um, it is what it is, I guess. Um you know, we, we could talk about public education uh, ad nauseum, but for me, that was <laughs> a very formative thing. And I'm like, wow, like little Christopher running around, um, you know, the Texas Gulf Coast um, saying, oh, that's that's bandwagon propaganda. <laughs> <You know? laughs> kind of wild to think about, right? Most adults don't even know. It, so. No, absolutely not. All right. Trammel Venture Partners. How did this come into your life then? Uh, obviously, you know, Dustin, he... Well, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. What was the story? What led up to him starting the fund and and you go you getting on board? Yeah, um, great question. You know, and I, I give you a little bit of our background. Again, we're, we've been friends for a long time, so we had a, I would say, you know, really good trust relationship. Um, I did my MBA, and part of this is just happenstance. I, I did did my MBA a little later in life than most people do. Um, which was perfect for me, it crystallized so many different kinds of experiences, um, educational elements, um, and really set me up for what I was doing. I, I, I thought that what I would end up doing immediately after the MBA is co-founding a company and, um, and building, you know, some sort of uh, company, probably be in like a, a high growth stage or even an exit by, by this point, um, you know, and that sort of thing. That was why I went. Dustin and I, we were tracking each other pretty closely, you know, while I was going through this program, um, you know, they got a lot, we, we engaged a lot and 
um, it was during an interesting period where in Madrid there was this one street near the near the school where a lot of the small businesses and things like that they had made their first attempts at accepting Bitcoin uh, for things like your salad for lunch or whatever it was, uh, which is retrospectively kind of funny, uh, but 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 you know admirable. This experimentation has to happen. Um, and we there was one a buddy of mine, Cameron. He hosted. He was very enthusiastic about Bitcoin at the time. He uh, put together a uh, a little talk. You know, like it was a couple of hours um, presentation, some Q and A. Um, I fielded some questions, kind of back channel with Dustin to add some texture since we had you know been around in the early days um, and, and that sort of thing. And that was really exciting, and it also kind of shined light on just exactly how early we were. And the backdrop there was, you know, 2013, 2014 was, you know, a significant uh, bull run um, that played out in real time while we were um, during our MBAs that dro drove a lot of interest. And so, um, you know, for me, I, I was, like I said, I was intending to um, to start a, uh, a software startup and kind of day one when I'm ready to begin my uh, my kind of search and kind of get get oriented for what's next. You know, Dustin pinged me, and, and you know, I kind of, I mean, we both kind of anticipated there was a, because we just know like our, our background, the story. There's like this huge, there's there's an opportunity set there that's very unique. And you know, he's like, if you could do anything you wanted to do, what would it be? Um, and that's the proverbial, you know, knock knock. Um, and uh, so we started a series of conversations. Um, I had lived away from Texas at that point for about eleven years. Um, the plan was to move back to Texas. Um, we had, while I was, I should, I should add to, it's super relevant to your question. While I was finishing up my MBA, we did the first of, of two investments in a company called Payword. Payword is the company that owns all of the Kraken brands. Um, the second one was after I moved to Texas in 2015. So 2014, 2015, we we're series A investors in Kraken, um, started that process, uh, moved back to Texas and, um, to do a few things. He had a couple of skunks work projects that, that uh, he needed some business development help with, but the main goal was to take up management of the equity investments and, um, and assess what the real opportunity was for us. And so um, the next year in 2016, we created Trammell Venture Partners, you know, venture capital is a very unique beast. You need very specialized experience and talent. Um, we need to attract that and retain that talent. Um, and so, that meant a dedicated firm. So, so Dustin and I co-founded uh, uh, Tremble Venture Partners, or we, you know, internally and I guess externally, two people refer to it as TVP for short. Um, you know, to focus on venture capital, we're Dustin and I. We just really have seen very deeply through our lives and careers. Venture back companies end up creating a dominant portion of market share for publicly traded companies. Um, job creation, economic growth—it's—it's—it's it's, it's really tied to this early stage entrepreneurial risk taking. So we took some of our own um, and um, and founded TVP um, uh, to to do that. Um, our first fund um, was uh, a broader deep tech mandate. You know, we we did some things um, in applied AI. Uh, we with Dustin's security background, as you can imagine, security. Uh, companies are, are very interesting. We didn't deploy capital there, just didn't see anything that was super compelling from a differentiated market perspective. But um, uh, we we did in our first fund, uh, uh, Seed Unchained Capital uh, with, with, uh, in that fund. And 
um, you know, the deal flow wasn't sufficient to do what we're doing now. And Mm -hmm. frankly, what we feel like all of our life experiences, our background, our track record as investors, et cetera, have really just primed us to be ready to do what I feel like is almost like calling level life's work, meaningful work. And that's back founders that are dedicated to building on the Bitcoin protocol stack exclusively. So, you know, we had this kind of broader deep tech uh, mandate first fund, um, you know, invested, had a couple of outside investors, mostly our capital. And then, um, you know, after we had all that deployed and we started the work, December 2019, we started laying the groundwork for the the TBP, TBP Bitcoin Venture Fund series. And, um, and we're, you know, that's our, our second fund. We're still deploying capital out of our second fund. And, um, and uh, yeah, that's kind of the background and how all that came to be. So the landscape now, which I've been uh, watching unfold for the last certainly 18 months, is looking very rich with new ideas, new companies, new entrepreneurs that are coming in and building the space. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if you see the same or whether you still think um, you know, there's always more that needs to be done. Uh, and we've also had... I mean, you're not alone now, right? That there's a good handful of Bitcoin-only venture capital funds, uh, which is great to see. And I've had uh, Elise Killeen just on the show recently and Jonathan as well from 1031. What I, well, I'll ask you, do you see these guys, are you competitors in the space or are you collaborators? How do you look at it? And, and how excited are you for what's been going on in the background in the last 18 months where people have been building? Yeah, um, great question. There's there's a fair bit to unpack there. So on, on the on the deal flow, on the opportunity set uh, question, you know, first and foremost, um, we're in a pretty unique position to survey the landscape, the, the universe of investable Bitcoin and Lightning companies, um, or just Bitcoin specific protocol related companies, because some of the investable investable landscape might who knows, uh, RGB might get legs or some of these other um, uh, areas, but um, you know, it's, it's definitely ticking up and we've been, you know, kind of quietly building a bench of, of, of research. I I don't know, you know, when this um, will actually go live, but it's, it's entirely possible that in, you know, by the time this is uh, public or shortly thereafter, we're going to be putting out a report that, that actually kind of surveys that landscape and what the growth was between, um, you know, primarily 2021 and 2022 and going into 2023. And there's definitely growth there. Um, so we're putting some uh, some numbers and statistics to that. Um, the other question, like, look, I mean, I, I've said for years, we, we, we're we very, very methodical, um, you know, and uh, disciplined in our approach. It's my genuine hope. If you're if you're a founder and you're hope, hoping to build a company, building it on Bitcoin, I hope you can get funded. We can't do it all ourselves. Um, you know, we, you know, by definition, um, you know, there's just going to be more founders doing projects that needed, need seeding than, than we could do. Um, and so, you know, there's, and you've named a couple and also there's, you know, there's several uh, angelist syndicates, um, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's seed funds, there's angel funds, there's, you know, there's a lot happening and they're, you know, where I think 
you know, are we competitors? Yeah, but we're friendly competitors. You know, we, you know, have a lot of mutual, you know, I like Elise a lot. Last time I was in uh, LA, we went and had lunch and stay in touch, Uh, for example. um, And um, our buddy, Max Webster, I don't know if you've spoken with uh, Max at Hivemind, um, you know, he was an investor in our fund and he started a fund as well. And look, you know, we just have slightly different approaches. And the interesting thing is, there's enough investable landscape that you can have uh, slightly different uh, uh, foci on, you know, what part of, um, you know, there's, there's just a lot to do. Uh, there's a lot to build still. And we're definitely in the early stages of Bitcoin native companies becoming um, a dominant force, which I think is also an inevitability uh, in due course. I think this, you know, you know, crypto and in, in air quotes uh, kind of thing, um, we're going to see a lot play out to where there are so many risks that entrepreneurs have to consider when they're starting a company. First and foremost, what's their opportunity cost? You know, if, if you're if you're a super high potential person, you could probably be making, you know, half a million dollars, you know, all in on an annual basis somewhere else. You've got to make a big company to overcome that opportunity cost hurdle. Um, so there's career risk there. You know, there's entrepreneurship is the reward, in my view, is is certainly worth it. But it can take a toll on things like, you know, your relationships and, you know, you're, you're, you know, I'm not in the gym as much as I should be, uh, frankly, <laughs> you know. Uh, so there, there are factors there to consider. The last factor that any smart entrepreneur is going to accept as an additional risk, if it's possible to build it on Bitcoin, they will 100% of the time, once they realize it's possible to build it on Bitcoin, why would you try to build something on Solana or this is a network that's got to be rebooted every couple of months. You know, you've got uh, the platform risk is not a risk that any smart entrepreneur is going to take if they can achieve what they feel like has a massive validated market and build it on Bitcoin. So um, I I've actually just sent out um, annual reports to our investors. And I talked a lot about the coming wave and I think, you know, it's exciting for me and for Dustin because we've been watching this play out for like over 14 years here. You know, we, like just offshore, we can see the first whip, ripples of what we think is just going to be a large move for entrepreneurs having, you know, around the world, not knowing each other, having a similar thing like, oh, wow, I didn't know I could build that on Bitcoin. And then coming home to build on, what I'd say is build on the money, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And and what I love about the the landscape as well is we are well covered because that those entrepreneurs that are trying to build something or just running a project, they can list that on Geyser and they can, you know, the plebs can throw in 10 bucks to, to back a project. And then somebody that's building something like Fediment, uh, they can come to people like Trammel or Ego Death or your or um uh Elise at uh at Steelmark and get, you know, the big ticket funding. And then we've got everything else in between the the angel list uh, like Lightning Ventures, for example, or the um, the Swan Bitcoin. Uh, they've they've got a, an angel list fund as well. This right. is all so bullish. Yeah, it's all so bullish for the future, uh, and I hope that anybody listening to this understands the the amount of work that has been going on behind the scenes when you're not drawn into drawing lines on charts, and you are absolutely you know focused on building something that is going to make a difference when this network effect explodes and we're off to when, when we're really off to the races. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's genuinely an exciting time. It's, 
you know, I think some of the things you just kind of hinted at are are actually one of the gaps that I still see remaining in terms of of appropriate capitalization. Um, if you take a clinical assessment and compare the Bitcoin ecosystem today to an Ethereum, for example, and just say, okay, well, what do they have that we don't have? I think the the one factor, um, and and we understand why why they have these things. They when they when they did their ICO, they raised capital in Bitcoin, which subsequently went parabolic, and so they had all this money to sprinkle around their own ecosystem. There are a lot of things that that are out there um, that I believe need to be built that are not actually companies or they're if they're companies they're not venture backable in the massive asymmetrical kind of sense um that nevertheless need to get funded and i think that comes into a bucket i would largely kind of describe as developer tooling um into the ability to quickly do mashups and use um, a lot of other infrastructure that people have built it's open source projects and then build on top of to rapidly put together a new application to satisfy what um, as we kind of started off the talk, um, you know, talking about that um, people that like to tinker, they might tinker on a lot of different things. And then one thing is an actual, uh, an absolute diamond that is very beneficial to a lot of other people that plays out in life in a lot of different ways. And so, you know, uh, I hear people like a Jeremy Rubin talking about um, things like uh, the ability to play developers engineers they like to tinker they like to experiment in a safe way certainly not in a way that's going to break the money the internet's monetary layer but in, in a way that they can scratch that itch and discover new tools and techniques that will actually accelerate ultimately um usage of of bitcoin itself uh demand for block space etc um, ultimately a uh, number go up <laughs> but uh you know, I think I think that's an area that's um, that's an important bucket that is not yet actually satisfied. And I've been talking with um, some people about interesting ways that that we might be able to help. It's not necessarily an area that can come out of our fund, but we definitely have a, a great network of people that want to support these kinds of projects and pull together some capital that would actually support some of these developer tooling type projects that will help us achieve something closer to parity with what some of the, you know, fun tools that just exist in other places to bring these developers home to Bitcoin. It's inevitable. It's truly inevitable. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm going to hit you with the, the last question here, Christopher, but before I do, I got to give a big shout out to, to Stephen Cole, who made the original connection uh, to, for me to reach out yeah. to you and, and try and organize uh, a podcast. It's been truly fascinating getting to know you I love going down these, these side rabbit holes, especially the wine and the cards, that was uh, that was great. Uh, you know, I love trying to you know dig around in people's past and and like I said at the beginning, tie that into where we are now and why we. You know, it's, it's it's that big question: why have we found Bitcoin, and how did we yeah. help others? Uh, so, exploring that area of our lives and our past is is always always fun. But the final question being. If you had just one last orange pill left to give to somebody, who would you give that to and why? Ooh, one person is really a question about who do I feel like would have the highest likelihood of subsequently 
um, spreading that knowledge and influencing others um, in a positive way. Um, wow. I mean, I could go a lot of different ways. I feel like um, in some ways, Elon Musk has had his chance. I mean, he's, <laughs> you know, uh, he's blown it. <laughs> I mean, he's maybe he'll come back to it. Maybe eventually he'll see it. He's obviously sitting on a a pile of maybe a billion or so worth of Bitcoin, but um, at Tesla, but um, he's he's entered a space now where probably half of the people of the world or more have closed their ears to Elon. Um, there sadly are a lot of people that liked Twitter being. Um, a manipulated, uh, you know, opinion controlled environment and taking that away. They've, they've taken their baseball glove and, uh, and gone home. They don't want to play in Twitter anymore. So I'm not sure he would be the choice. Um, I I think this was, this one is going to be, I'm just going to go for it. And I, I think that it's, it would be incredibly naive to think that, that he would be the person, um, but if Barack Obama somehow came to see Keynesianism and fractional reserve banking as this unexpected for him common thread of, you know, underpinning a lot of the things that are negative for, for human rights, uh, for, for so many different areas, what a boon that would be uh, because he has, um, the ear of a lot of people that are not necessarily overlaps with our day-to-day -day circles. And I think, um, I think that's a good thing, you know, uh, people that you might actually disagree with on a lot of points so you can find the common denominator of agreement around sound money and, you know, Bitcoin being the, the internet's monetary layer, um, and why that's actually a long-term net, uh, huge positive thing for, for humanity, then, um, he'd do it. I think he'd be a he'd be a good one. I think it's incredibly naive to think that he'll get there, but <laughs> but there you go, Barack Obama. Well, let's hope. Let's hope one day he he steps up and starts, yeah, uh, you know, and becomes a Bitcoin max. He puts the uh, the laser eyes on. You never know. Christopher, it's been a great chat. How can people reach out if they? decide they can add value to you guys in any way shape or form or want to get in touch what, what's the best way to to get in touch with you we we try to be as easy to get in touch with as we can uh and, you know first and foremost you know people that are thinking about building companies on bitcoin uh you know and then also you know investor types or you know maybe it's someone that's that's been had a great career in TradFi and is looking to work and dedicate the rest of their life to bitcoin companies you know we we do a lot of work to try to get the right people in roles and help them uh, from an HR perspective in our companies and portfolio, um, whatever, or you just want to be in touch and be part of the audience uh, and support. Look, I'm, I'm M E C E E on Twitter. Um, TVP.fund TV is our a website. Uh, and you can get, get in touch with, with, with us there. Um, and uh our email where our emails are on the on the website as well so any and all of the above telegram we, we've we're like saint paul we've got to be all things to all people <laughs> all right well it's been great getting to know you thank you very much and i look forward to seeing you i'm sure you'll be in miami or maybe in prague if you're coming across this side of the pond 
and we'll get to have a steak and I'll let you, and I'll insist on you choosing a bottle of wine. <laughs> that sounds great. So good to, uh, to meet you and chat with you today, Daniel. And I look forward to meeting you in person one of these days soon. And uh, thanks for having us on. All right, brother. Take care. Thank you. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interesting conversation with Christopher Calicott. And for those people that already knew Christopher, perhaps you got to know a little bit more about him there as well. We certainly delved well deep down into his past. And uh, thank you for, for sharing so much of, uh, of what uh, experiences have helped shape your life, Christopher. And here we are today. We're in safe hands with people like you overlooking funds and uh, a good amount of money for you guys to find those projects that you need to back and to make sure that we have got the right people behind those projects as well pushing these things forward so bullish as always on bitcoin and even more bullish on bitcoiners uh, so with that in mind make sure you do get to one of these conferences this year I know I talk about this a lot, but it certainly changed my life when I was able to actually get out and start meeting other Bitcoiners in real life. That is a very uh, visceral experience. It's uh, the return on investment of actually meeting people in real life like that, that you've been um, perhaps speaking with on Twitter for, for many years is, is pretty huge. And I've met Bitcoiners that have had gone to their first conference and have been in Bitcoin for multiple years, but still the first time they'd actually ever met some of the people. And yeah, you can't really put a, you can't really describe that. So get to it. There's uh, there's a few of them coming up, as I'm sure you know. Hoddle Hoddle, they throw one in September uh, in Riga. It's called the, the Baltic Honey Badger. Make sure you're following their account because uh, they already sold out uh, of their early bird tickets. So you don't want to miss that next tranche. Uh, you have Liberty in Our Lifetime, which is put on by the Free Cities Foundation. It's parallel structures. It's not purely Bitcoin, which is very interesting to go and see these other groups and pockets of, uh, of ideas and people uh, and projects that are, are going on out there that you might not have even been aware with, but you can plug directly into, especially if you are of a, an open mind and uh, on a Bitcoin standard. Uh, so check that out. That's Liberty in Our Lifetime. Link is in the show notes. Uh, again, Free Cities Foundation are putting that on in Prague in mid-October. So go get your tickets. The Bitten discount code should be up and running. Uh, if it's not, just DM me or Peter Young on Twitter and we'll, we'll sort that out. Uh, you also have BTC Prague coming up. Hit the link in the show notes. That is in June. Uh, some huge huge names coming up and that should be a very big conference with uh, a lot of fun so get out there and meet your plebs and of course don't forget Miami is coming up if you cannot get across to the US uh, make sure you hit up one of these ones on this side of the pond but Miami is coming up and that is in mid-May and you can use the code BITTEN at checkout for a 10% discount and don't forget all of your show sponsors they'll be at these places too Swan Bitcoin, Relay, Coin Corner, Hoddle Hoddle, and Wasabi will all be there, as will Shift Crypto. And that is a perfect time. Uh, if you have not got your hardware wallet, you should have one. Shiftcrypto.ch forward slash Bitten. Uh, you use the code Bitten at checkout to get the 5% discount. If you go into one of these conferences and you want to wait and buy that in person from, from the booth, then you know, do you. 
but please make sure you do not have any Bitcoin on any exchanges or apps. Uh, so the quickest way you can get them off would be simply download wasabiwallet.io, create your wallet, and pull off the Bitcoin into your Wasabi wallet. That will coin join for you, and that will keep them safe until you do get your signing device. So, But please make sure you have a signing device or you are committed to getting one. That's it. That's, that's all we have for this week, and I look forward to the next show. Take care, guys, and see you on the next one.